Crime Wives is a true crime podcast. Some of the content on this show might be too graphic for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi guys, and welcome back to Crime Wives. <laughs> I'm your host, Veronica. And I'm your host, Destiny. And we're laughing because... It's been a while. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't been a while for you guys, but it's been like two weeks for us. We've it, definitely seen each other in between those times. Oh, it's been a wild two a weeks. A lot yeah. times. Um, but we're happy we're here. We are so happy we made it back to this location in life and that we're here to bring you what you like to listen to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're very pleased by that. <laughs> and uh, before we get into anything, um, since this is our, our new thing at the top of the show... If you haven't yet, please go to um, anywhere that if anywhere you're listening right now, if you could just go and rate and review us, that'd be super helpful to us, obviously, as you know. Um, and then if you haven't yet, go to our um, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, we're Crime Wives Podcast, um, and give us a follow, like some of our stuff, interact with us in some fashion. That would be amazing. And um, if you'd like to connect with us, uh, crimewivespodcast at gmail.com. You got anything you'd like to send us, which we've been getting some fun inboxes and we appreciate them. (laughs) So um, if you haven't that. Um, Also, I think this week you guys got it last time. You get it again. I think we're going to do a two-parter for you guys. So yep. Yep. We just want to make sure you guys continue to get content, but also uh, Thank you for being patient because I am getting married in literally less than two weeks. So it's a little bit crazy. And then with all the editing that we have to do on top of it and everything like that, it just, there's a lot on my plate right now. (laughs) Um, So thank you for your patience in that. And then once we get back, we'll definitely get jump back into our normal way um, where you get two stories. So yeah. So you're not getting nothing. You're just getting some two-parters so that it's easier on the bride who's trying to have a wedding's life, okay? (laughs) And also, if you can't tell by my voice, I'm still dying. We'll get into that. (laughs) We shall Um, talk about that. Yeah. So so the two-parters are helpful on both of our lives right now. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So you still get some content. So this week, you get to hear, uh, like last time, you get to hear me tell a story and you get to hear Destiny talk about... Just some snippets of her chaos as she gets out of bachelorette mode and into wife mode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, for sure. So as you all know, we'll talk a little bit about Vegas so that we can talk some more about it on your end. Uh Uh-huh. Maybe we'll do it my point of view first. So we went to Vegas (laughs) with about... Almost 20 people. Oh, man. Almost 20 people and a lot of bad ideas. <laughs> a lot of alcohol. A lot of fun times. Oh, yeah. People cried. Good food. Yeah, people Those cried. Those hot wings. Dude, neither you or me cried, though, so I that's good. Yeah. We're yeah. like, high five. We didn't cry. <laughs> yeah. Our other friends. Yeah. We won't name names, but there was some crying. We have named names in the past, and now we'll like, leave those names yeah, out. Yeah, there was some puking while crying. Oh, yeah. There was... <laughs> Dude, we had good friends. And you know what that means? It means it was a well trip. Yeah, I mean, the people is that really might be the people that might be ashamed of themselves now, they're like, "Oh, I'm so mad that I acted that way." You made that trip what it needed and to be. And literally, listen to us. We don't care. We're <laughs> laughing about it. We think it's hilarious. We don't think it's hilarious that you were upset to the point where you had to cry. We just think it's funny that it drunkenly happened because, yep. and we're happy it wasn't us. 
Dude, it was a good time. I love this cryptic messages we're sending to the people that were with us. Right. If you cried, we still love you. <laughs> we don't use it against you. Um, but no, it was a blast. I mean, there was pool time. There was no sleep time. A big limo. There was a spanking. Oh my. There was a lot of spanking. The shot and swat. So Dude. we went to... Opera House. Yes. And... I swear to God, I, for- I still have a bruise on my ass. <laughs> I forgot you got a spank in there. Oh, and I, on two hours of sleep, I'm like hungover. I'm like, oh, they're going to kill me. Yeah. I was not about it. But then it happened, and I was like, whoa, I'm awake. You're like, wow, I think I'm good to go after that. Hello. <laughs> Man, I should have got one of those. <laughs> Might have brought you back. Yeah. Um, We'll talk about that on your segment. Yeah, don't worry, guys. Tune in next week to hear about how Ronica died. I'm here and alive. Remember how she said... When the next one releases, I'll be dead. Thankfully, she's not. I jinxed myself. But she was almost. <laughs> I was almost literally dead. Um, which reminds me, look at this. It's funny. She has oh. uh, some bruised I've veins. I've got some bruising veins. Which sounds weird. So, yeah, we'll definitely get into that part. On <laughs> They're like, shit, we don't get to hear about it on this. <laughs> right. Another no, week. No, you get to hear about Destiny's fun. And the fact that we found out that Destiny is the champion of all champions. Because she can stay up until 10 a.m. in the morning get about an hour of sleep, and then continue to party, where some of us that couldn't hang that way were literally talking about it on the cab home from the ER, like, dude, Destiny just figured, we just figured out you're the champ of all champs. I appreciate you it. Can just... My mom's like, really? Really, <laughs> Destiny? And I'm like, okay, well, at least you know I can rally. Yeah. Um, I think you give definition to the term rally. Dude! compliments everywhere yeah i love this <laughs> i was mind blown <laughs> uh yeah i was a little i took a power nap in the fucking cab from dinner to the to fremont oh, i was like i'm gonna chill give me just oh, a minute I... i'm gonna take a quick nap brie took a video of it i was gonna I'm say like, i think me. i received a picture of you asleep or a video, well, yeah, in the waiting room of somewhere. Like, no. oh, she's still... She's... No, it was in the cab. Oh, it was in the cab. Yeah, so I'm just... I was like... in the waiting room of somewhere, and you were in the cab. And yes. I saw, you're like in the front seat, just... <laughs> yep, yeah. Solid 10 minutes. And then I woke up, and I was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. That is next level. Um. Yeah, so that all happened. And then I came home, and I was like... <laughs> my life um and so now I've been in wedding mode and yeah. it's been I tried on my dress my final fitting which oh. was amazing was it a beautiful moment it was a beautiful my mom cried oh good good it was, I'm glad to, well, one of you has emotions oh, right, right well and they've been putting it together um like this whole entire time like it's a custom dress so they did 65 hours of beading oh on it. my gosh yeah and so when I finally saw it I was like this is what I wanted Perfect. And it has pockets. I'm just so stoked about my freaking pockets. pockets. Oh, dude. Oh, that, um, is, that is something that will come in handy. Right? There's so many different things. <laughs> Tissues know. and Jules flasks. is like, can you keep some chocolate in there? For-? And I was like, fuck that cho- chocolate. To melt. Is it all white? <laughs> no. Um, keep chocolate in your own pants, first of all, and your own pockets. Get out of here. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, there's that, and then I did centerpieces, we did, got all of our music figured out, yes. so and we got our flowers ordered, so I've been busy since we got back, good, basically, good. is what I'm saying. Good, good. So, yeah, I ordered 22 dozen dahlias. Oh my gosh. Are those flowers. for centerpieces or for... Uh, Both. 
Both? Okay. Yeah. And we're gonna are you gonna be making them a few days before? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, we'll talk. We'll talk. Yeah, yeah. We, we gotta get on I'm schedule. asking about it now like anyone else cares, but I care. <laughs> She's like, but I need to know. Like, I have some wedding um, questions while we're here. Yeah, so that is what I've been doing. Well good. Good, good. It was <laughs> Vegas was a good Okay. I apologize. <laughs> I have also had a very scratchy throat since we came back. Oh I'm yeah. I've been on all the Vegas smoke. I should probably address the fact that I sound um not like my usual self, uh, in case, oh, this does feel like the right time that the last time anyone heard from us on both, I think I mentioned on both podcasts of the two-parter that I wasn't well, and I was like, I feel like I'm going downhill. Turns out I had strep throat, <laughs> so I was right. That night of recording was the was the day before I found out that I had strep throat, so sorry. And now I don't have strep throat, but I'm dying of something else, so you get my Your sexy voice. system is just... <laughs> Dude, Whoa. in the event of an apocalypse, I will be the first to go if it's viral form because I I get everything. So, You're like, I'm out, I'm out for the count. Uh-huh, yeah. So, um, sorry, but also kind of not sorry about this voice that you guys get. You're welcome. You're welcome. She was seeing Smelly Cat earlier. <laughs> Smelly Cat. It really does sound better when you have a cold. Okay. Okay. So there was mine. What are you going to be talking about this week? Okay, so this week I am doing a, what we'll call, we'll call this one a request or a special request. Um, request? Did I just say request? Yikes. Off to a good start. We did have a fan message us and um, he also started donating to our podcast. Dude, we haven't even set up full donations yet. I know. Dude, I Alec, stoked. what's up, bro? We love you, Alec. <laughs> yeah, we really do. And because of that, um, he also sent in a request uh, that if we ever wanted to cover. And so, because you are so gracious and you have, he, he literally from like early days is like, hey guys, love your show. So um, I'm doing the Menendez Brothers, um, which if you haven't heard about them before, get ready. Um, there's, first of all, there's tons of coverage on this. So it's one of those situations where I had to pack what I wanted to put. Um, so I did pull most of this off of Wikipedia because they did a really good job of of highlighting what I wanted to talk about as well. Gotcha. Um, so a lot of this is in sequential form that you will find it on Wikipedia. However, this is me trying to really cram down some some big info. Um, this story is long. If you, I also, this is like, if you, if you Google like huge stories, you'll get like John Bonet and like those kind of, or like the staircase and then the Menendez brothers come up. Somehow I've never heard of them before. I have heard of them, but I cannot recall what it, what I know about them. So I'm excited to learn. You might. Um, I should also say there are going to be just a few graphic parts of this, which you know, if you're here right now you know what you're getting. You already know that you're going to get some graphic content. But for me, I don't usually go, this graphic. It's brief. Okay, so I'm doing the Menendez brothers. First off, here's a little background because before we establish where their family life was, um, we need to kind of explain how it got there, I guess. Um, So Lyle and Eric are the Menendez brothers. They were born to parents Jose and Kitty. Yes, that is her first name. I love it. Mm Mm-hmm. Jose and Kitty uh, were married in 1963 and moved to New York City, where Jose earned an accounting degree uh, from Queens College. The first son to be born was Joseph Lyle Mendez, uh, but he went by his middle name, Lyle, which 
before I even continue to explain who these brothers are, I'm going to show you a picture of them. Um, the name Lyle, for whatever reason, fits a upper class slight douche in my brain when I think of the name Lyle, and he totally fits it. So he goes by Lyle, not Joseph, and it fits is what I'm trying <laughs> to say. Like but he looks like a douche. Yeah. Um, I only provided one picture, and it's it's you'll see why, um, but it's not necessarily of Lyle. Okay, moving on. Um, Lyle went by his middle name. He was born on January 10th, uh, 1968. After Lyle was born, Kitty quit her teaching job and, um, the family moved to New Jersey. So they kind of move around a little bit because dad's got a good job. So they're moving around for that. Gotcha. Shortly after that, on November 27th, 1970, Eric was born. So now there's both of them in the world. Uh, the family lived in Hopewell Township in New Jersey and the boys attended Princeton Day School. So... If I haven't already, I'm trying to establish how they keep moving up in the world. <laughs> so, eventually, in 1986, Jose's career, their dad's career, was going so well, essentially, and had taken off um, that they ended up moving to Calabasas, California. And this is the part where I'm like, if you don't know anything about Calabasas, California... I do not. Okay. That's where the richest of the rich move. Like, that's where Jeffree Star lives. Is that... Is that... Oh, <laughs> is that okay, depict enough okay. for I'm trying to put it in modern terms okay um so and this I wrote here and for anyone who isn't familiar with this particular part of California let me a peasant explain <laughs> <laughs> that it's very very well part or very well off part of the world um it's it's basically where if you have a lot of money and also you're a celebrity, you live there. So it's where just people that aren't famous co-mingle mm -hmm. because it's a very nice part of California. Lots of gated communities or like gated housing. Yeah, so. I live there now. Yeah, you, you, uh, Jeffree Star has a house there and then like a house for all of his cars there. Shut the he fuck yes so i need more money i need i don't poor. even need that much money i am someone who could not handle that much money i wouldn't know what to do alex wouldn't let me He'd be like <laughs> nobody knows he said if we ever won the lottery he wouldn't he would try to stay anonymous and wouldn't tell anybody oh, absolutely and he was like nobody would know our friends wouldn't even know oh you wouldn't even you wouldn't even get there. a new car <laughs> you wouldn't even get a new car if you got a new car none of us would suspect you won the lottery <laughs> So anyways, now that we've established, they have moved to Calabasas. Again, it's in the 80s, so it's 80s rich, if you know nice. what I mean. Uh, yeah, so once established, Eric began attending high school in Calabasas, where he earned average grades, but um, had a remarkable talent for tennis. He ranked 44th in the nation for 18 and under players. And then Lyle enrolled in Princeton University, during his freshman year, he was placed on academic probation for poor grades. So, like, both of them aren't, like, super duper. I love that he plays tennis, though. That's the other one. But one of yeah, them. Yeah, the other yes, one. Yes, yes. He I and he tennis. plays tennis. Yeah, just 44. Like, yeah. So, um, Lyle was eventually suspended for a year after being accused of plagiarism. So, he's just really trying. They're just both trying to get by. Uh, from what the documentaries told me, uh, he, here's what I've come to conclude. They were both very, they were very close brothers, like a little more close than I think. I think they just had a really, I'll explain. Uh, they hung out a lot outside of school and, um, they competed in a lot of sports together and they were known, um, to have been kind of rebellious together. And as the documentaries kind of, they do a really good job of explaining that 
times were tense around their house. Like, as far as, without going into detail about, without, like, giving it away too early, um, their dad had a really high expectations for both Mm -hmm. of them, as rich, very well-off dads usually do. Yeah. Um, I mean, dads in general sometimes, as us as parents. Um, He set a standard for his sons that I think their rebellious attitude wasn't super into. So, their father's response to their kind of... Okay, this is also a little bit confusing to me. In one of the documentaries, it's mentioned, and then in another one, it's not mentioned, that when they were younger, they um, committed, like, some small burglar... Bird? burglaries oh my gosh that was so rough um and that they had done them kind of together and their dad's response to that was to call them both sheepish sheepish followers and told them that they could do much better than that so oh just like you bitches <laughs> however right um it just it seems like either the dad was really rough on them and it made them very rebellious or the dad was a little bit more than that so okay so you choose to believe what you want to believe And now we're going to flash forward to the night of August 20th, 1989. We've established they're well off. They're in high school. They are now no longer in high school. Both of them are a little bit older than that. A dispatcher for 911 receives a phone call. On the other end is a very distraught man who they are eventually able to establish is Lyle Menendez. He is an absolute wreck. And um, when the dispatcher asks what happened, he sobs into the phone, someone killed my parents. I was going to try and find a clip because it's, someone killed my parents, kind of like, just, so again, I don't know about you, but I like to read into 911 calls and be like, I'll believe this, you know, like trying, (laughs) okay. So I also haven't listened to enough of them to know what I do and don't believe. And they all sound the same to me. <laughs> right. I hate it. So You're like, they sound upset. I don't know. Yes. He sounds upset and he says someone killed my parents and then um, she's like, how or where? Or... So this is where the gruesome details start to unfold. So get ready. Uh, when the police arrived, the brothers explained that the two had gone to see a Batman movie just a few hours earlier. And when they arrived home, their parents had both been killed. And that's putting it lightly. Um, investigators on several interviews later made note that upon entering the home, they, they basically were like, well, in the documentary, one of them's like, and then we get into the house and it's eerily quiet in the house, just eerily quiet. And there's a few little snapshots of like video footage of them kind of walking through into the home. And it's a very eighties homes, but they, when they enter the den, um, they came upon the bodies of Jose and Kitty. Here's the gruesome parts. Investigators were able to piece together from the scene, Jose was shot in the back of the head with a shotgun, brain matter and blood spatter were all over the walls as well as part of the ceiling. Oh, Jesus. Kitty appeared to have been awakened by the shots and got up from the couch at some point. She was shot in the leg as she ran towards the hallway, causing her to slip in her own blood and fall. She was then shot several times in the arm, chest, and face, leaving her unrecognizable. Oh my god. Uh Uh-huh. Both Jose and Kitty were also shot in the kneecaps. Um, And this detail was, like, pretty strongly pointed to an organized crime, like, right away. These types of shots often appear um, from mob hits. Yeah. So, they were like, okay. So, in the early stages, due to lack of evidence, the police didn't interview anyone, like, at all. 
Uh, nor did they test anyone, including the brothers, for, like, gunshot residue. Like, they didn't... Why would you not? I don't know. I'm not sure. So, uh, the police tried to narrow their search down to people who would have um, had motives to kill Jose and Kitty. One of these police, or people, included a pornography distributor named Noel C. Bloom. Uh, but he was found to have no involvement, and he was not in town at the time. Uh, or during the night of the crime, so he was pretty quickly cleared. And also investigators um, kind of looked towards the potential mob leads, but um, the more that they searched, the more that they were like, oh, this is kind of a bogus route. So finally, um, while they keep going to dead end after dead end, obviously, uh, they decide to take note of, or take a new direction, not note, just new direction. In the months after the murders, uh, investigators and close friends noted that the brothers began to spend money rather lavishly. Oh. Yeah. So, Red flag. Yeah. And by that I mean, Lyle bought a Rolex watch, a Porsche Carrera, uh, Chuck's Spring Coach, uh, wait, wait, Spring Street Cafe. I went to the next one. So he literally bought a Buffalo Wing place and a cafe and these were in Princeton, New Jersey. So, like, they weren't just buying Rolex and a new car. They also bought some businesses. Um, <laughs> Lyle did. And then Eric hired a full-time tennis coach and competed in a series of tournaments in Israel. So, like, he got even better at tennis because that's what he wanted to do. I mean, dreams, but yeah. interesting uh-huh. timing. Yes. And it was, like, <laughs> in the months after their parents' death. So... Uh, They also drove around Los Angeles in their deceased mother's Mercedes Benz, and um, they were seen by different people, like, dining at very expensive restaurants, Um, and then they went on overseas trips uh, to the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending upon who you are, and then they also went to London, and in this, like, amount of time, they believed that it was, that they spent somewhere around $700,000. Damn. So they were um, grieving. (laughs) With their money. Mm -hmm. Uh, Without being too much of a surprise, uh, by now the investigators full-on suspected that the brothers were responsible for the parents' murders. And eventually the brothers were um, the cause of their own undoing, to be honest. Again, bringing back the documentaries, it's like pretty obvious that they just kind of, they're like uh, how I viewed it, no one suspects a thing. Let's keep doing this. And so they keep doing it. First, the police tried to get a confession from Eric by convincing one of Eric's close friends from high school, um, who's also a tennis friend of his, to wear a wire while having lunch with him at a local restaurant. Um, That friend's name was Craig. And when Craig asked if he killed his parents, Eric initially said no at dinner. However, I think this conversation triggered him to go to his... um, He basically eventually and this is very shortly after it, um, confesses to doing so to his psychologist. And his psychologist's name was Jerome Ozeal. Eric eventually told Lyle that he um, told his psychologist. And Lyle freaks out and goes into that psychologist and is like, he freaks out so much so um, that he confronted Ozeal and threatened to hurt him. Was like, if you ever tell this story that my brother told you, and he was like, so we know who the domineering one was for uh-huh. sure uh-huh. oh yeah uh-huh you'll find out why more and you might be sad about it okay so he goes in and apparently threatens the doctor and uh, 
apparently nothing really comes of that at the time, except that the doctor goes home and tells his, who is referred to as mistress, so I don't know if it's like his girlfriend or his side girlfriend or if maybe he... Sounds like it's his side. It could have been, but sometimes they refer to mistresses and they might just be ladies. I don't know. Okay. He threatens him. He's like, don't tell the secret. From there, Ozeal, who um, was probably like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> um, told his mitch- mistress told his mistress about the murders, and she went straight to the police about the brother's involvement. Surprise, surprise. Because yeah. like, if my boyfriend was like, you know, one of my clients today told me that he killed his parents, and they're like pretty well known people in the community, I'd be like, I'm gonna go tell. Sorry, <laughs> uh, somebody should know. Yeah, someone should know this. Okay, so. Because of this, Lyle was arrested on March 8th, uh, 1990, and Eric turned himself in three days later after returning to Los Angeles from Israel, where he was out doing some tennis stuff. Um, Both were held without bail and separated from each other, which I don't know why that's a a note that it keeps reoccurring, that they're like, and they were separated. Just so they couldn't I just thought, like, that's what they would, that's, isn't that what they always do? isn't that normal? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Okay. In August 1990, Judge James... Uh oh, I didn't help myself here. Albrecht? Okay, I said it. It just doesn't look that way. I might be wrong. Okay, James Albrecht uh, stated that the tapes of the conversations between Eric and his psychologist, Ozeal, or Jerome Ozeal, um, were going to be admissible in court uh, since Lyle had violated the doctor patient privilege by threatening Ozeal. So apparently these are recorded sit downs. Yeah. And um, there's certain information that they can use and apparently Lyle knew he was being or I'm sorry Eric knew he was being recorded somehow and was still okay with okay so with saying because his brother threatened they decide okay you're we're taking this straight to court we're gonna bring those in however since that ruling was appealed the proceedings were delayed for two years the Supreme Court of California then stated in August 1992 that's how far forward we've moved um, that most of these tapes were admissible, except the one Eric discussing the murders, which I'm like, mm. well, okay, that's yeah. stupid, but let's just there see we are. what everything else he has to say if that incriminates him alone. Um, after that, what I put was an annoying decision. Uh, the Los Angeles County uh, grand jury issued indictments in December of 1992, charging the brothers with the murders of their parents. So now they're like, okay, we can get this court case started. Yeah. Um, so it took them a long time to kind of even establish that these brothers were were involved, which is so weird to me. Okay. By now, the case was rather sensational, obviously, because yeah. as I've stated, they're really rich and the tabloids, it's one of, it, I think it's another, the reason that John Bonet Ramsey's case went so wild is for obvious reasons. Like it's scandal and it's a rich family and these people were really well off, really well known to their community. And so mostly the whole super rich people um, committing crimes, for some reason, we love to talk about that. That's just what America does. So uh, not unnoticed was the fact that these two dudes were also equally good looking as they were frightening to look at. And when I say that, I mean, they, I like, I'm like, oh, the bone structure. And then I look up pictures and I'm like, ah, the death Gaze. Yeah, the death glares. That, yeah. Okay, so you sent me the two pictures. Yeah. And, I mean, they're, like, attractive, but, like, they're attractive I don't want to the see them in an alley. No, yeah. And the one um, with the curly hair who's really got the death, he's the younger one, Eric. 
And so he seems extra angry to me. And we go find out why. Alrighty. Okay. So again, what you choose to believe. And then if you believe it, you'll see that that's probably why he's so angry looking. Okay. So super sensational. The They were scary to look at and... Um, but also not bad on the eyes. It's very confusing. So I think that's what brought the appeal. But of course, their trial was broadcast on 1993 or in 1993 on court TV. So that's why there's so much information court info on them is because you can just watch the play by play. And there's a lot going on at every court. The first court trial that they had completely documented all the way through. So One of the people interviewed in a short documentary I found um, said that the trial cases are just about, or there's just this guy that they keep talking to, and he's basically, he says, trial cases are just about who can tell the best story and who can tell the most compelling story. If you get a lawyer that can sell your story really well, that's, um, and whichever side presents most compelling and believable cases is who wins the jury over, essentially. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's the best way I've ever heard it told. (laughs) So the first few days of quote, storytelling, were mostly to set the scene of the brutal crime to introduce key witnesses. Um, And then out of nowhere came what I call the bombshell. And this is when they, um, the brother's defense lawyer, her name's Leslie Abrahamson. I should have provided a picture of her too because she's, um, she's very, I think, Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. Oh my gosh, why couldn't I think of that movie? Okay, so think her in Pretty Woman, her outfits, um, whenever she goes back into the store after they already told her to leave and she comes back and she's wearing that nice little pantsuit outfit mm-hmm. and she's like, big mistake, mm-hmm, and like leaves. Okay, those shoulder pads is what this lady is rocking at all times. <laughs> she's also usually wearing all white, but it's like a nice little two-piece business and her hair is very badly permed and very badly fried. And so oh. she's just the epitome of... 80s lawyer and she is here to tell her story or tell their story i'm guessing yeah so her name is leslie abrahamson um she became known for her quote bombshell theory um that the brothers were driven to murder by a lifetime of abuse at the hands of their parents mostly of their dad Mm -hmm. and the other part is that it was um sexual abuse at the hands of their dad i had a feeling that was going to come into play uh uh-huh so I mean, it's to be expected. It's a great defense in my, you know, that's, I understand. Um, but they basically say that not only was he this cruel perfectionist, but he's also a pedophile. And then, of course, um, their mother was described as selfish, mentally unstable, an alcoholic, a drug addict who encouraged her husband's abuses and was also sometimes violent towards them. So when Leslie Abrahamson decides to bring the brothers to the stand, however, her theory was heavily supported by the absolute heartbreaking stories the brothers um, told about their dad. And this is where I'm like, oh, (laughs) I was watching the video and I'm like, ah, shoot, I want to believe him. Like, God damn it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, In one of the on-stand interviews that I'm going to assume is probably one of the more famous parts of the, again, I don't know how I didn't know about this before, so I'm like... I'm probably telling this to people who have heard this story before, and they're like, yeah, Ron, everyone already knows this is the part. But um, the on-stand interview, she brings Lyle, the older brother, up, and she starts questioning him about the events and kind of is like, can you just tell the court or tell the jury what it is that why you feel like you're driven to do this? And through, he starts crying, and he, he starts crying, and he's like touching his lips, and he's got his hands up, and he's trying to keep himself together, 
and it's believable, but mm-hmm. he's also the one who called 911 and said his parents were dead and believable. And he's like trying to, and then someone interferes in the background and is like, Your Honor, this dude's about to fall apart. And he's like, No, he can answer the question. And so he starts explaining um, that his father molested them um, and that it started taking place in the bathroom. So, A, get ready for some just some kid stuff here. Sorry. Um, he says that it started happening a lot in the bathroom, that he he also describes his dad putting him on his hands and knees and showing him positions and then using a toothbrush. Oh, my God. And then um, there's like, okay, so he's talking about the toothbrush situation and the camera is like facing him and the camera kind of zooms out and starts to like scan across the room and he starts, as he's telling this, it starts zooming in on his brother, Eric, who's watching this happen, and he has glasses on, and he takes his glasses off, and at first, when I'm watching it, this is why I'm like, it's very compelling, is that he looks like he's about to smile, almost, like, he kind of looks like he's smiling, and then I'm like, oh, no, I'm wrong, that's what a dude does before he starts to cry, like, it's that, a dude about to cry, there's this it's on the side of his head is how they're zooming in. And there's this vein that kind of like starts flexing or pumping. Oh, wow. And so it's like, oh, he is in fact feeling feels right now. Like this isn't acting on Eric's behalf. But the, so the camera zooms out, goes over and he starts saying about a time that um, he took his own brother to the woods with a toothbrush as well. And that's when the, kind of the camera is like going in and, and he, you can, you can see Eric's face and you can see him start to cry and you can hear Lyle's voice go. And I'm so sorry that that happened. And so, yes. And so that's where I was like, I'm about to cry. Right. So, oh my God. And it just depends. You can kind of see it where you're like, well, shit, this probably did happen. Like I, I agree. It, it probably did take place. Yeah. I don't know necessarily that it was all fake, but setting the scene, and the next part that I wrote is, just like that, the story goes from two spoiled rich boys who murdered their parents to one very sick and broken family. Yeah. So believe what you want to believe, but there, it sounds like there was a lot of chaos in the family. They were rich, and just because they were rich doesn't mean everything was great, which is the story that they kind of keep trying to tell in all of the documentaries. So... The first trial ended with two deadlock juries as a result. Um, because, I mean, I probably would have been like, I don't know what I want to believe. I don't, yeah. However, I... the the whole, well, I'm going to go on to explain. So the Los Ange- Angeles County District Attorney, Gil Grishetti, announced immediately that the brothers would be retired. Um, which meant that there would be a second trial, essentially is what that means. Um, the second trial was much less publicized, uh, partly because Judge Stanley Weisenberg in or Weisberg uh, did not allow cameras in the courtroom. But the other thing that he did not allow during the second trial um, was the defense testimony about the sexual abuse claims. What? Yeah, it did not allow the jury to vote on manslaughter charges instead of murder charges due to that because essentially. Um, and this is my opinion, is that the judge saw their crime for face value and wanted the jury to see just because that happened, should they have shot them so many times in their home, you need to... Well, and there's nothing that is backing it up. 
They didn't so it's do a he anything. Said, she said kind yeah. of thing. There's no other reports of it. They never. Apparently, though, they did in the first trial bring someone on the stand who was their cousin, who said when they were ten, Lyle, maybe it was Eric. I think it was Lyle had went to him and said, uh, "Does your dad touch your penis or massage your penis?" And he like they brought him in, and so that's that's another thing that would make a pretty obvious why there was a deadlock jury. Yeah, yeah, because. So I'm assuming that in the second one, they weren't allowed to bring this guy in. I think this this second judge was like a no-nonsense. These people were brutally murdered. I want someone to go to jail for it. Yeah. Despite what happened to them. Um, which, Ugh. it just, yeah, it's just... Yeah. That's, I mean, it's just... that's Depends uh, on who you are. The first judge was like, no, let's bring this in. This is a part of it. But then when you get two deadlock juries, the second one's like, okay, let's just look at the crime. I mean, yeah, I mean, they did kill people they did kill their own parents yes and it not was people <laughs> and they didn't like give them some sedatives that maybe put them to sleep forever they brutally married <laughs> brutally married them oh yikes mm. they brutally murdered their parents so much less publicized uh wasn't allowed to bring in any of that testimony and so essentially because of all of that um both brothers were eventually convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And uh, the penalty phase of the trial, they were sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. So they got what the judge wanted them to get. The jury said that the abuse defense was not a factor in the deliberations, but chose not to impose the death penalty because both brothers had no real criminal record um, or history of actual violence. Mm -hmm. So that's why when I talked about the the robberies before, they were left out of some documentaries. So essentially what they're saying is they were pretty good kids, it seems like, and trying to point out that they had bad grades in school isn't good enough to say, well, this is what would make them murderers. So let's not give them the death penalty. Yeah. But they did kill their parents, so let's give them life. Yeah. So, you know what? Okay. I'm actually, I think I support it. However, unlike the first trial, uh, the jury in the penalty phase rejected defense's theory that the brothers had killed their parents out of fear, as it is believed they committed the murders in order to inherit their father's wealth. So, in this jury's opinion, they killed them because they wanted to spend all of that money, which... They did not help themselves by spending all of that money. Yeah, yeah. Maybe if you guys would have... Like, in two... I looked at it both, like, both ways. A, they wanted to kill their parents and get money because maybe they were just some greedy kids, and maybe none of that actually happened. Mm -hmm. But the way that I saw it happen, I'm like, okay, maybe that did take place. And also... They were so used to just spending money left and right that they just kept doing what Well, they... and then they didn't have anybody watching it for him. Exactly. They were like, oh, well, we just have all this money now. We're like, yeah, we did this, but... Yeah. Meh. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it probably happened just with the way that you explained it, with the cousin, yeah. everything like that. Just it... go... You can also... The one video where if you don't want to, like, get... See the whole story drawn out... Um, there's a YouTube video that's like a Fox 5, but it's from way back in the day, and it's just the court. Fox, it's yeah, fake it's, news. It, I'm just yes, kidding. right? But it's just the recording, so that's yeah. why I'm like, okay, I'll watch this. Um, it's them kind of doing a recap of the stories, and so they are showing some of that court TV footage, and it's so, it's just, that's where I saw the court TV footage, where I was like, oh, I'm suddenly sold on this story. Right, yeah. No, I'll definitely have to watch it, because... It's like 12 minutes long, too. So Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can do you 12 can, minutes. You can 12 minutes. Um, but I definitely think that that probably happened not even seeing the video. Um, but also, I mean, there's other ways to handle it. Yes. There are other people that get unfortunately molested, and it happens 
on way more than we want to think about that don't kill their parents. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, on July 2nd, 1996, Weisberg sentenced the brothers to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, something that kept coming up about their lawyer that I was going to leave out, but I'm like, okay, I already talked about her hair and her outfit, um, was apparently the second trial. Um, she told the defense witness to edit his notes, um, but the district attorney's office decided not to conduct a criminal investigation further into her choosing. Like she was, there's a few different parts of the other documentary where she's like, like, yo, you need to edit your notes and change some of the things. Like, some of the statements that are being said, she wants them to be changed. And they chose not to go after her for the fact Weird. that she's being shady. Yeah. Which is not helpful. At I mean, obviously. Obviously, it's not helpful. I don't need to say that. Okay. The brothers were sent to different prisons in um, until February of 2018. So, they were not together for a long time. Um, they were housed in separate units until April of 2018 when Lyle was moved to the same housing um, unit as Eric, reuniting them for the first time since they began serving nearly 22 years earlier. So they got to see each other again. Um, there's, I don't know if there's video footage of this, but I could not find it. But there, the, what it says is that they both burst into tears and hugged each other um, at the first meeting and they were just basically standing and crying and loving each other. The unit they were housed in is reserved for inmates who agree to participate in educational and other rehabilitation programs without creating disruptions. That felt like something that I needed to put here because it just shows that they are just committed. They, they've they they've done a lot in jail. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, another rather interesting fact is that while in prison, both men were married. Lyle um, what? had been married twice. And then I think Eric is still married. Um, he was married to a lady who does interviews quite often. And there's an interview of her. On July 2nd, 1996, Lyle married. This, this I was like, I can't not say this part. Okay. Lyle married Anna Erickson at a ceremony attended by Abrahamson. So his lawyer um, and his aunt Marta. Um, which was presented by Judge Nancy Brown. So this judge, in the state that they were in, uh, you can get, have a judge marry you over the phone. <laughs> so that's what happened. He got married over the phone, and um, that marriage ended in April of 2001 after Erickson discovered that Lyle was allegedly cheating on her with another woman. And I'm like, He had how? another pen pal? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, how is he, quote, Cheating. I mean, you. We all have different standards of cheating. Yeah. But I'm like, ah. like he's for sure probably not physically cheating. Yeah. No. You. He's he's sending love notes to somebody else. Um. Also, but also you married someone in prison, you, which wh- people do, which is you, they do that. Uh huh. To each their own. But it's like a it's like a there's like a terminology for that that ladies that like go for that like that gets them going. I don't know. That's a whole nother conversation. It truly have. is. Um, so, uh, who, uh, my next note was who or how that was possible is beyond me. In November of 2003, Lyle married Rebecca Sneed, um, at a ceremony at a, in a supermax prison, um, in a visiting area. And this is in Mule Creek state prison. Uh, they had known each other for quite a few years prior. So I don't know if they were like dating while the, 
trial everything was happened. going on yeah. or something, but they'd known each other for a long time. She was apparently now super into him. Um, on June 12th, 1999, Eric married Tammy Ruth, so Eric gets married again, um, at Folsom State Prison in the waiting room. Tammy later stated, Our wedding cake was a Twinkie. We improvised. It was a wonderful ceremony until I had to leave. Then it was a very lonely night. <laughs> We okay. It's so strange. So do they There's, have access? Do the wives have access to their money? I is think what I'm wondering. I kind of wondering. I didn't. I probably should have looked a little bit more into that. And so, like another note that was like the brothers didn't talk for the longest time, and they were sending notes back to each other. That's the only way they talked. And they played like a game of chess. Like every time one received a letter, they would go to the next move for like nine years or something they were playing this game of chess this one game of chess uh, i kind of love that i know like they were just that's just how invested they were but i also think because i think notes were how they like met women. letters yes letters <laughs> notes shut up whatever you write notes in your letters right <laughs> so anyway um i think that's kind of how they were um connecting with these women as well but anyways they're well i mean letters are still now are huge like i have a family member that was in prison mm-hmm. and that's how me and him communicated i like we yeah. write letters i mean we could we would do telephone calls too but they're more expensive right exactly and i was younger so we would just write letters and then and there's something a little bit sentimental about receiving oh yeah my ex your ex you know about destiny my ex fiance oh. was in the military. Oh, so we would right, write letters right, right. back and forth all the time. Yes. So, um, I, I thought you were going to be like, my ex was in jail. I was like, wait a second. I don't know everything about destiny. So, really. There's that. Um, yeah. So it's actually, that's pretty much the whole story, um, of them. There is so much more. There's really good documentaries on them if you want to. And it was, it was a fun exploration into a story I did not know about. Right. So. Well, yeah. And I kind of like, I vaguely remember some of this, but uh-huh. Definitely needed all of the information. Yeah. So I don't thanks know for the recommendation, Alec. <laughs> yes, thank you, Alec, because you're right. This is a good story. This is it's a good um I I always love a what you choose to believe story. Yeah. And so um I do not love a murdered parents story because I'm a parent. <laughs> so Yeah, well I don't think you're that kind of parent. So I think <laughs> I think we're okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Note to self, note to self. Be a good parent. Got it, got it. Got, got it. it. I think you're doing a good job. Yeah. So I mean on that note, that's me this week, folks. Right. Thanks yeah. for listening, guys. Thank you so much. Crime Web's out.